The following is a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, how you can support it, or applying to become a student, please visit www.gpts.edu. Hello and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. My name is Zach Groff. I'm your host here on the podcast, and this month we have a special edition of Faith in Practice, which means I have Dr. Joseph Piper, our president, in the studio with me again. Dr. Piper, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Zach. It's great to be with you, as always, even if you are funny. Uh, Dr. Piper, can you tell our listeners why this episode of the podcast is a special edition of Faith in Practice? Uh, it is, Zach. When we uh, had some questions for our last monthly Faith in Practice on overtures coming to the Presbyterian Church in America General Assembly, um, we thought uh, one thing was that it would be very specialized um, podcast. I, I do think others are going to profit from it, and eventually these issues will face the other denominations as well. And it would have taken up the whole podcast as well and not able to address the other important questions. So because of that, you and I agree that we do a special edition of Faith and Practice. Yes, all of the above is true. Dr. Piper and had the, the great idea of having a special dedicated podcast. So our brothers and sisters who don't care for the PCA or don't care about the PCA could skip over this one. And those of you who are, like us, very concerned about what's going on and interested in the peace and purity of the PCA and her continued health uh, can uh, use this as a reference or even a guide to understanding what's going to be happening in Dallas this summer. Dr. Piper, would you please pray for us as we prepare to enter into the discussion? Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we look unto you, the rock of our salvation. We look unto you, the King of all things, and through Christ, the King of the church, and all things that are taking place in this world. But particularly, Lord, we think today about Christ's church, which is his bride. We thank you for revealing to us in your word uh, the principles of government by which we seek to govern ourselves in the Presbyterian Church in America. And we thank you for um, the privileges to address important issues in the life of the denomination. And through the process, Lord, of uh, overtures, we ask today, as we will discuss some of these very important and controversial overtures, that you will give me grace to um, answer with uh, winsomeness and gentleness, uh, but truth. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Dr. Pipe, I want to start with overture number 29 from Metro New York Presbytery. Um, of the 30-odd overtures currently before the PCA General Assembly, there are five, numbers 8, 14, 19, and 21, and 29, respectively from Ohio Valley, Southern New England, Rocky Mountain, Nashville, and Metro New York, that seek to expand the formal involvement of women in executive functions of service and advisement at various levels of the church, whereas Ohio Valley, Southern New England, Rocky Mountain, and Nashville presbyteries all submitted pretty much the same overture to permit ladies to serve on permanent committees of the General Assembly, an idea that's been rejected in 1989, the year I was born, and then Last year, in 2018, Metro New York submitted its overture to allow individual sessions to determine whether or not to ordain female deacons at the congregational level. The first and seventh whereas statements given in Overture 29 cite a diversity of belief and practice among Reformed and Presbyterian denominations, including some with whom the PCA has formal relationships through NAPARC. Is this support for the allowance of women deacons a compelling reason to give this overture serious consideration? Why or why not? Zach, before I answer the question, let me just for the sake of those who will be uh, not as familiar with how the General Assembly operates to give a little background information. The General Assembly is the, uh, in a sense, the appellate court um, uh, in the uh, Presbyterian Church in America. It has couple of primary functions. One is to uh, oversee the work of the ministry of the church at a national and international level. That's done through various committees uh, in the denomination that have uh, then paid staff. And then it is uh, a court that would uh, receive appeals in judicial cases or complaints if there's been a, in the mind of someone a miscarriage of justice according to the Constitution in a presbytery or local congregation. And then it's to address doctrinal and practical issues 
that are percolating uh, in the church as well. One of these unique things about the Presbyterian Church in America as uh, we formed in December of 1973 was it was to be very much a denomination that would be controlled by the churches. And so we did not want our committees, and later on we didn't even have agencies and we're against them, uh, but now the college and the seminary and I think a financial thing has agencies, but we didn't want them to be the tail that wags the dog. We wanted the elders of the church, the ruling and teaching elders of the church, to be able to really govern the church. So the General Assembly elected the membership of what we call permanent committees. Uh, initially, we had uh, home missions, foreign missions, Christian education, and then an administrative committee. Uh, later, we added a retirement committee, uh, an investment committee, a college, and a seminary. We wanted these uh, committees to be elected by the General Assembly, and we wanted them to answer to the General Assembly. It's a very unique thing that was established, and Dr. Morton Smith was one of the primary architects of, of the Book of Church Order. One of the unique things established was the Committee of Commissioners so that the uh, permanent committees didn't even report directly to the General Assembly. Uh, they had to report to a group of elected uh, delegates at the General Assembly who would oversee the work, approve or disapprove of recommendations, minutes, a main of operation or whatever. And that really gave some vigorous oversight uh, and accountability. Uh, under the guise, and I use that word deliberately, of streamlining the assembly, uh, increasingly, these uh, committees uh, almost now are basically advice and consent at best. They get a series of very innocuous recommendations that do not get in any way to the heart of what the permanent committees do. So you're talking that the, the committees of commissioners right. are basically rubber stamping. Right. So that uh, as it's structured, the permanent committees are to, to take no, no new initiatives for example, without the Assembly's permission. Well, they no longer um, abide by that, which I think is very important when we come to discuss a couple of these uh, overtures. And then there was a super uh, committee, um, rather than just committee commissioners, appointed called the Bills and Overtures Committee, so that the great majority now, uh, an overture is when a presbytery sends uh, to the Assembly um, a request to do a certain action or change a certain thing in the Book of Church Order or in uh, the Rules of Assembly Operation. And these uh, requests are called overtures. They have grounds. They have to be passed by the majority of people in, the pre in a presbytery. Uh, they go down to this super committee of bills and overtures, which has a ruling elder, allows a ruling elder and teaching elder representative from every presbytery. So you would actually, what do we have, 77 presbyteries now, 70, 70. I don't know off the top of my head. We've had some division and multiplication over so the anyway, last couple of years. Uh, the super committee then uh, debates all of these overtures uh, in its session, which is supposed to cut debate then on the floor. Uh, but, of course, what it does is hinder uh, a broader input uh, from the General Assembly and hasn't been seen at this point to really shorten uh, the debate procedure, at least in my opinion. So we've had a movement afoot for a number of years, really ever since the Reformed Presbyterian Church Evangelical Synod came into the denomination in 1983, 10 years after we formed, there has been a movement afoot to get uh, women um, ordained as deacons. Consistently, uh, the Presbyterian Church in America uh, has rejected that. We are convinced that the biblical requirements for deacons uh, listed out in 1 Timothy 3 um, are that a deacon must be the husband of uh, uh, well, only one wife. Uh, and the little statement in there about ladies really has to do probably with the wives of deacons, thus the wives of church officers. That's been the historic understanding of that passage as well. So ever since Calvin established Diaconate in Geneva, women have been enlisted uh, to assist the deacons. Sometimes they've been called deaconesses. Um, that's fine. They were not in any way participating in an ordained office. So they keep coming back uh, with this. 
the women's report two years ago, many had hoped that that would come in with the recommendation for women deacons. Um, I have heard that the moderator who appointed that committee was actually chided because it didn't. Uh, uh, so they keep pounding on this issue. And so it comes to us once again, and after a number of whereases, which you find in these overtures, then there's the, uh, this, this particular overture is to allow each session uh, to decide whether it would have um, women deacons. Now, the, there's basically three grounds. Um, one is that there's been some difference of opinion about 1 Timothy 3.11, which refers to the wives of deacons. And Romans 16.1, that refers to Phoebe as a deacon. But fairly consistent interpretation of those passages, though, is not in favor of, of women deacons. And that's been hammered out at the assembly level Oh, in terms of study committees, debates on the floor. I mean, yeah, we can often. go back and see the minutes that the overwhelmingly the accepted interpretation of those passages in the Presbyterian Church in America has been n not to understand those passages as legitimizing right. the ordination of women as deacons, but rather understanding those passages as referring to, um, or using that word, diakonos, in a more generic way. They also uh, mention the fact that the Confession of Faith speaks of Christian liberty and not unnecessarily binding the consciences of men. Christian liberty has to do when Scripture is silent. We are convinced that Scripture is quite clear. We go all the way back to Old Testament. The office of priest and Levite was the precursor for the office of deacon. It's very interesting that in the New Testament, these offices merely are assumed. They're not newly originated. And it shows that we're simply picking up how Christ governed his church in the Old Covenant. The first deacons then elected, if they were deacons in, in Acts 6, were all men. And that every officer in the Old Covenant church uh, was a man. And so we've got this long line. It's not a matter of Christian liberty. Uh, and, and then the argument you mentioned, Zach, of, about association, that there are other Reformed denominations within NAPARC, which is the National Association of Presbyterian Reformed Churches, which is a, a loose alliance of like-minded confessional churches that a few have allowed women to serve as deacons, uh, particularly the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church and Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America. Now, the problem with that argument is that I, I'm pretty sure, I know in case of the ARP, that the women deacons was the movement of the progressives in the nomination to move towards women elders. And when that church did an about-face uh, and began to become uh, biblically sound once again, uh, that movement stopped. They were stuck with women deacons, but uh, I would say a great number of the really uh, godly confessional men in the nomination would like to see that change. I think the same is true with the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America. They, too, were headed down the slippery slope of progressivism, and they instituted this office, which was completely contrary to their culture, out of Scotland and Ireland. Uh, and again, they've been turned around. We thank God for that, but we have to realize that what we, they've inherited is not what a good number of them would like today, but it is hard to change a, a book. You have to have a lot more than a simple majority to, for these nominations to uh, change these things. And then they offer some scriptural grounds that also I find to be very, uh, I mean, basically what they have is uh, uh, the Romans passage, Phoebe. But, you know, Christ is also called a diakonos, um, that uh, the word is used both generically and used for office. The same with uh, the word episcopus for overseer. Eventually becomes a technical word, but uh, it's not always used in that way as a uh, technical uh, a word. So um, it's contrary to, I think, the whole biblical issue of, of church office, of ordination. Ordination is to office. Uh, ordination does imply um, a Christ-given authority, uh, in office, and that deacons uh, are exercising authority. They have discretionary 
authority of who gets their aid. They are to prepare the church budget and bring it to uh, the elders. They are to, again, have a good bit of discretionary uh, function in terms of church properties, uh, the treasury reports to the deacons. So there's a lot of authority there, so also it would violate 1 Timothy 2. Uh, JosephPiper.com, I have an article up on um, the exegetical arguments against women in uh, diaconate. Now, what's sad is that the very people that are bringing this to us have been breaking the book of church order by having women deacons. And uh, so, again, we're not getting a lot of just open and honest uh, interaction on these things, and it really needs to stop. Um, There are denominations that are very happy with women elders and women deacons, Um, Evangelical Presbyterian Church, and I think a number of these men uh, would be a lot happier uh, in a denomination without trying to change a denomination that's historic roots or otherwise. I think that's right. And in the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, which is not associated with us through NAPARC, but rather associated with us through the um, NAE, National Association of Evangelicals, the Evangelical Presbyterian Church does leave it up to presbyteries and to local sessions to determine their course of action. There's nothing being forced upon a church. So if these men desire to have women deacons but don't want to have women elders and have a, a conviction on that, they'd be very comfortable in the EPC. In fact, I, I grew up in an EPC church before um, I you know, got married and moved and came into the PCA and was really exposed to the Westminster Standards. You know, this uh, one of these whereas, as I alluded to, that Westminster Confession 20.2 speaks of Christian liberty and not unnecessarily binding the conscience of men. That's exactly what the EPC used in their formation. They formed about the time the PCA did, but they wanted to have an openness on charismatic gifts and openness on women officers. And so this is, this is the argument they adopted of why not coming with us into the PCA. Exactly. Uh, so, Dr. Piper, going back to the argument that other churches, other denominations within NAPARC, the North American Presbyterian and Reformed Council of Churches, uh, particularly the ARP and the RPCNA, the fact that they have lady deacons should uh, suggest us that we should have lady deacons, you say that their adoption of lady deacons is really rooted in, in a in a leftward slide that took place in these denominations earlier in the 20th century. Um, our friends uh, who are hoping now to, to have Lady Deacons in, allowed in the PCA might respond to you and say, well, Dr. Piper, you're committing the genetic fallacy. That might have been the cause, the innoble cause uh, for why they adopted that, but that's not the case now. They still have it on the books now, and, and they are strong denominations that we have fraternal relationships with that, um, that continue to allow this practice. And so let's look at the current reality. Don't worry about the history but you have to, and Zach, the slippery slope. And, I, I and did allude to this already, that it takes, um, as it does in the PC, I don't know their exact numbers, but it takes a majority vote at an assembly, and then it takes something like two-thirds or three-fourths of the presbyteries, and again to pass something and back to the assembly. You, As I said, a majority, even a, a good-sized majority, cannot undo uh the women office bearers at this point in those denominations, even though they're trying. That's right. And and I think we, we could muster uh, substantive evidence that, that not just, you know, a right, right-wing fringe of men no. are trying to change this, but really the mainstream leadership of the denomination is, uh, is, are, is setting things into motion and in place to, to get these things changed in their books. So really this whereas statement, which seems impressive, oh, our friends are doing it. The other nations around us have a king. Let's have a king too. <laughs> this, this argument, which might seem compelling on the face of it, when you dig down a little bit deeper, uh, has no clothes. It's the emperor with no clothes, so to speak. And, and really, I'll say this uh, for, for myself, not for the seminary, but for myself, I really think that it is unfortunate that our brothers in Metro New York Presbytery even included this as a whereas statement. The other things are worth discussing, but this this bit about sister denominations having lady deacons, it, it is it's not just it's not just ill conceived. I would say it it verges on deception. I don't I'm not willing to impute motives to these brothers. I don't know what they were intending to do, but it really is 
uh, so well, it far could be they the didn't truth. know the history, Zach. So that, I that's true. That All right. Well, Dr. Pipe is more but gracious than me. What I would say is it's very interesting because it'd be interesting to watch the reaction of that presbytery to a, an overture that we'll talk about in a while uh, to uh, approve the RPCNA statement on sexuality. Now, that would be a wonderful thing to we'll adopt see from the RPCNA. We'll if they're going to uh, <laughs> still use their RPCNA as, uh, as brethren at that point. Yeah. They will oppose that overture. I think you're right. I think you're absolutely right about that. All right, moving on from Overture 29, let's discuss the other uh, other overtures I cited that that deal with um, that deal with having women and unordained persons in general, not just women, but unordained men as well, serving on the permanent committees of the General Assembly. Uh, the overtures that deal with this, as I mentioned before, are number eight from Ohio Valley, number fourteen from Southern New England, and number nineteen from Rocky Mountain, number twenty-one from Nashville. And basically, there's some slight variation from overture to overture, but basically they all say the same thing. They'll get lumped together in the Bills and Overtures Committee to be discussed together and considered uh, in omnibus. Dr. Piper, how do do we sort through this? This is something that's been denied in 1989 and 2018. Uh, what is difference about about the the attempt here in 2019, and how do we evaluate this biblically? Well, I think the attempt uh, here is simply to open it to non-ordained persons to serve on committees uh, and boards. Um, and so, actually, outside of church office, uh, uh, an uh, unordained woman should be able to do what an unordained man does. They will argue. I don't even argue that. An unordained man can teach a men's Bible class. I don't think a woman, I think a woman's prohibited from doing that. So I don't even buy that. Uh, but that's what they will argue uh, at this point. So what we have to really address is not simply the thing of women being on the committees. We do have to address that as well. But it's almost, a, what's the word, a canard. It's, uh, uh, we have to address the greater principle of non-ordained people uh, being on committees and boards. So I, I touched in the introduction on how these uh, committees and boards operate. They are elected by the General Assembly, and they are uh, making uh, and implementing ministry decisions. Now, they're making ministry decisions. Now, yes, those decisions had to be approved, well, supposed to be approved by the General Assembly. I th- would challenge anybody that wants to spend the time to go back and look at the General Assembly minutes and what the committees have done and to find out uh, how much autonomy they have uh, actually usurped to themselves over the last uh, 30 years. Uh, But regardless, they're supposed to uh, come up with ideas for ministry and bring those to the Assembly, and the Assembly should review them and um, approve them. Uh, and so uh, they also put together a policy manual. They decide the salaries of the salaried staff, all the salary staff. Uh, and they put together advisory uh, committees to, uh, to give them input, which, in effect, we already have allowance for advisory committees having the non-ordained people on them. That's in the Book of Church Order, um, Section 14. Excuse me, it's the rules of assembly operation that the committees may have subcommittees that would um, give them uh, advice. Um, now, what is interesting is, although they say non-ordained, the argumentation has to do with uh, women. And so their third, whereas, whereas vigorous participation of women in the life of the early church is attested by the New Testament, They helped select and train leaders of the church. They prophesied. They served church through deeds of mercy in vital ways and were instrumental in the planting of churches uh, and other missionary endeavors and were acknowledged as important leaders for the church. Now, there's a lot of equivocation taking place in this, whereas uh, uh, helping select Leaders of the church is absolutely true because that is one of the powers that belong to the congregation. That is the essential Presbyterianism, that a congregation has the power to uh, select its office bearers as the congregation. Um, training, I think that's a reference to Aquila and Priscilla taking Apollos aside. Well, obviously, uh, couples, disciple, individuals, um, 
in their home. This is informal. This was no church uh, action that they were taking. Um, yes, it's true that at times uh, ladies prophesied, but we also know that Paul for- forbid them to speak in the corporate assembly. Um, the Dorcas did deeds of mercy, but again, that's something that goes right back throughout Scripture. Uh, and instrumental in planting churches, well, yes, women are a part of a group of people that will go together and, and, uh, and plant churches. So, um, but what's interesting, and that's where they tip their hand, because they're, they're calling this to allow non-ordained persons, but their whereases uh, get to the fact of having women on these committees. So they dressed it up this way because last year we defeated um, having women on uh, three of the committees and uh, boards. Um, but it's, it's still, it was over 60% of, of the committee last year even uh, rejected that uh, overture. Um, so, but there's another principle involved here, and that is that uh, women serve on committees in the local church, and they do, but they are members of the body, and as members of the body, they may be enlisted by the elders to help the deacons, they may be enlisted by the elders to uh, sit on a, um, a library committee or a women's work committee or education committee. Uh, that the session then would uh, give them responsibilities as a committee. Um, the committee could make suggestions to the session, but um, again, that's their prerogative as being in the congregation. But women are not members of the court, nor are non-ordained men, not, are not members of either the presbytery or the General Assembly. And thus, the only people that would have the right to serve on a General Assembly committee is a person who is a member of the court. Now, we will have um, adjunct members, deacons might serve on um, presbytery committees and General Assembly, but they're ordained officers. So, again, this is uh, the continued push uh, to put women in places of uh, authority, on denominations, committee agents, committees and agencies within the church and needs to be soundly rejected also, I think, with an, a, a, an exhortation. Enough of this. Uh, they come back year after year uh, with the same things under different guises, and they're really wasting the time of the General Assembly uh, because we have to take up the committee time, and then on the floor, uh, if this is defeated, as I hope it will be, there'll probably be a minority report. Uh, if it is uh, not defeated, there'll definitely be a minority report, and then we will come in and have a two-hour debate on the floor anyway. And that's where it doesn't speed things up because you're still going to have minority reports on anything that's that's serious. And we have a procedure for dealing with those, and it's pretty lengthy. Now, we do control the time of debate, but then, of course, that also is, is in a sense, uh, unrighteous because we're cutting off debate in the midst of a very serious issue. People standing at microphones uh, wanting to uh, to give their arguments. So, uh, anyway, we, we look at it. Our, our assembly, in terms of being a delegate, I... Uh, Deliberative of body is, is really a joke. They hope that this would help. And it is deliberated now at, at this committee level, but then it's rehashed when you get to the floor. My initial response to, to your saying that there needs to be an exhortation, this needs to stop. The, these, these kinds of overtures that are soundly rejected again and again need to stop coming before us. Looking at church history, it's not, it's not going to stop. <laughs> it, will, it will always rear its ugly head again, and even maybe like a hydra. Last year, one head was cut off, and this year, how many, mm. how many overtures were sent up? One, two, three, four. I mean, that's like a, that's a hydra on steroids. It wasn't just three heads popping into place. It's four heads popping up in, in the place of the one that was lopped off last year. Um, this, this ought to be a, 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 a sobering reminder to, to those of us who want to stand for biblical truth in our church, that we must be steadfast and patient 
and long suffering and recognize that in each generation, the truth needs to be defended. Reformation is not something that ends with one generation going into the other. It's something that's continually needing to be re-energized and given due attention and foresight and planning. That's just a general claim, a general statement. It's easy to get frustrated and to check out of General Assembly and even to seek out other avenues of uh, ecclesiastical association with different denominations or new denominations. But we must stand fast and defend the truth where the Lord has put us. Yeah, right. And I think we've addressed this already. In fact, I think I gave a pretty lengthy um, address on the faith and practice recently on the people that are leaving. Yeah. Even if the General Assembly passed this, it has to pass three-fourths of the presbyteries, which I think would never happen. Yeah, I agree All we're doing you. is wasting the church's time. And so I, I just encourage you guys out there that I understand your frustration, but what the General Assembly does is fairly irrelevant at this point. And we just need to hang together. Uh, and then if time comes to act together, but now is not the time. You know, the problem is we say the General Assembly is fairly irrelevant, but what happens at the General Assembly is noticed by oh, people at the at the local church level who are thinking about coming into a PCA church. I was speaking with a brother in a, in a presbytery up north, not my sending presbytery, but a, a different one, and he told me they had visitors visit their church over a span of several weeks and then contacted the pastors and sat down and said, you know, we, um, we love this church. We love its worship. We would love to have our children raised here, but... We see what's happening in Missouri Presbytery of the PCA with the Revoice Conference and at a Memorial Presbyterian Church, and we see the overtures that are being posed out of not just one, not just two, but four, five, six different presbyteries now um, pushing leftward. And we're, we're, we've decided we, we just don't want to invest hmm. our time and lives in a denomination that seems to be going so radically to the left. I think that's a, that's a huge over overblown kind of conclusion to come to based Unless on what's you're the going pastor on. of that church but the pastor of that church has a has a righteous indignation then that flares up against these guys that want to sully the name of the presbyterian church in america in, in a leftward liberal progressive direction because now it's it's influencing what's happening in his church at his local church level so i i bring that up because Though I know what you mean when you say the General Assembly stuff's irrelevant. It, it doesn't have any real bearing, binding impact uh, without approval from the presbyteries. I get that. It is incredibly relevant to our local churches that are trying to witness to their neighbors and claim the PCA is a biblical church and then get, you know, I think fair pushback on that claim uh, from visitors even who are considering the church. So I'm not a pragmatist and... I'm bringing this uh, this observation up because it was something that crossed my desk just a couple weeks ago. Mm. So, Dr. Piper, moving on to, uh, there's an overture here from Ileana Presbytery, Overture 30, that just came in, uh, requesting a study committee to be formed to study same-sex attraction and its sinfulness and, uh, and all that. Um, this is contrasted to an earlier... Overture, I think, Overture number 11 from Fellowship Presbytery here in South Carolina asking us to uh, to adopt a study can we report from the RPCNA as our own. What would be the, the pros and cons of having our own study committee report at this point on this issue, which has been hashed out so adequately by a sister denomination? And um, ought we rather to um, just adopt Overture 11 and save us, ourselves a bunch of time and money? <laughs> Well, yeah, these study committees uh, absorb, again, a great deal of time and money. You've been on one, right? A long time ago, yeah. abortion, and another one as well, I think, on uh, who should serve communion. But they don't accomplish a great deal, particularly um, the, the study committee that came in on the federal vision was appointed to deal with the federal vision, not to study it, whether or not it was right or wrong. A, a study committee waste time and money, and it's not going to come to a useful conclusion. Most of these set of committees come to compromise-type conclusions. And what we have in the, the uh, report from a, a fantastic study of the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America, I mean, it is really well done uh, exegetically, 
even in terms of the science that's involved and the various sides of this discussion, uh, and then great pastoral counsel. So there's nothing about that report that would be anything but useful to us. And it is not something that got carried over from the past. It's a recent report that's been done by these brothers. And I have studied, I've been through it twice now. And I'm, I think that it really commends itself to us. And so why spend the time and the money? Now, we could send that report down to our sessions and presbyteries to look at and not do anything formal with it. Or we could, as the overture asked, uh, they're not asking that we adopt it even. They're simply asking that we make it available through our Christian education promotional uh, resources. But we can do no better and probably won't do nearly as well as they have with that report. So I see no need to have a study committee on this issue. And how do study committees work? Who gets on a study committee? Yeah, the moderator uh, appoints the study committee. So it would be the current moderator for that year. We're going to have a ruling elder as moderator. Um, if my suspicion is correct, we'll have a, we'll have a, a rather conservative ruling elder as moderator does it. this um, year. So to study questions of same-sex orientation and gender identity. And the Bible is very clear on the gender identity and same-sex orientation. Yes, there is a, a minority in the church that uh, is pressing that there's nothing uh, sinful about it. But I, I think that the majority of the church is convinced that it is sinful. One of the grounds is the Revoice Conference held at Memorial Presbyterian Church PCA in St. Louis has promoted questions and concerns about the PCA's position on sexual orientation and gender identity that are not addressed in the affirmation of the Fifth General Assembly. And whereas the peace and purity of Christ church is under assault by the acceptance of cultural norms and misleading uh, misleadings concerning. So I really think this Presbyterian is coming with real sincerity to mm-hmm. get this uh, a strong statement. I'm just afraid we will not get a strong statement and that we've got a, a very useful statement already. And so I would answer this by... It's a reference to the uh, uh, overture from Fellowship Presbytery that we receive contemporary perspectives on sexual orientation, a theological and pastoral analysis, and distribute it to the presbyteries and congregation of the denominations, and that the General Assembly direct the Committee on Discipleship Ministries to publish the um, contemporary perspectives on sexual orientation for sale and distribution along with other actions of the assembly related to human sexuality, especially the actions of the Fifth General Assembly and the joining and receiving as the PCA statements on gospel and human sexuality. So we've got those statements, and we would have this RPCNA statement sent down for study, and that doesn't cost any money. That's right. And we're Presbyterians. We like that. Right. <laughs> so, Dr. Piper, there are a number of uh, overtures here asking uh, the General Assembly to affirm biblical sexuality in, um, in one form of articulation or another. The first one that came in was from our presbytery, Overture number 4 from Calvary, Declare the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood's Nashville Statement on Biblical Sexuality as a Biblically Faithful Declaration. It's not really asking the General Assembly to do much. It's just right. asking them to declare it as Biblically Faithful. Uh, we also have um, this uh, similar overtures coming from... Let us see. Well, we mentioned Overture 11 about the RPCNA's report. That's well, a bit more Presbyterian has sent their own affirmations and, and denials, denials which is a really a, a stronger, yeah. Uh, so a stronger one. That's we, Overture number 28, and then uh, Philly, Philadelphia Metro West, my sending Presbytery, um, sent up an Overture number 22, urge Assembly to adopt Overture 4 regarding Nashville Statement. So again, bolstering Calvary Presbyteries. Calvary's. Uh, Again, it's like the RPCNA. We're not adopting the statement, uh, but simply uh, declare it to be uh, a biblically faithful. faithful declaration and refer it to the Committee of Discipleship Ministries for inclusion and promotion among its denominational teaching materials. Now, we dealt with this in the past. Um, is, is, as far as it goes, it's strong. It's a series of affirmation and denials by the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood uh, that's been active for a good while. Uh, the detriment of this statement is that it does not address a same-sex orientation. It 
wisely addresses the physical problems of uh, uh, sexual development, uh, physical disorders from the mother's womb, and answers with Christ that this is uh, some are eunuchs from birth, um, and deny that ambiguity is related to a person's biological sex render one incapable of living a fruitful life of joyful obedience to Christ. Now, they're only talking there about the physical problems. Um, so they don't. Everything else is clear, unambiguous, and they don't. But they don't address the matter of same-sex attraction, which is a deficit. But on the other hand, as I've said in the past, this is a good statement, and so let's go with what we can, uh, and then uh, strengthen it down the road. Well, in fact, what we have from Westminster Presbytery uh, does strengthen uh, the statement uh, because they address the issue of uh, same-sex uh, attraction. Let me find that one. This is a rare occasion to have a General Assembly dealing with a number of hot, what we would call hot-button issues. Usually yeah. you get one or two, and, and this year it looks like we have four or five, depending upon how you define hot-button issue. Um, but uh, it will be an exciting assembly for those who are there, and, uh, and and we certainly hope that you're planning on being there if you are an ordained well, man in the PCA. You can also uh, watch it online. That's right. Uh, That'll be fun. <laughs> so Westminster Presbytery has uh, 12 articles, each with an affirmation and a uh, denial. And, for example, Article 3, we affirm that Jesus condemned both sinful sexual attractions and sinful sexual actions. We deny that Scripture permits homosexual attraction and orientation. And then they get into homosexual attractions, incestuous attractions, bestial attractions. All are sexual minorities in the church. And that we deny there's any virtue in being identified as a sexual minority because all of these dispositions are sinful. So, and then that grace can change a natural sexual orientation. So this is much better, uh, and I would love to see us uh, adopt it or adopt both of them together or, or whatever. Because they're compatible, too. They're very compatible. Outside of this, this simply builds on the other. and Expands upon the expands same Expands on it in the area that really is before us as the assembly. We don't have anybody at this point overtly I think it will come because what's driving this is the nature uh, schema. So by nature, a person has same-sex attraction. Well, then can that which is natural be sinful? That's the next step, and it's going to come. Yeah. So I would hope that uh, in some way uh, we would either answer Overture 4 by answering, referring to Overture 28 and adopting it as the action of the assembly, and then answer the study report by answering uh, that with the overture that we uh, uh, commend as biblically faithful, the report from the RPCNA. So I think th th those are the two ways that I would go at this point. Very good. That, that is helpful. There's an overture here that, um, that I noticed, and we had mentioned it offline before, about um, establishing a study committee on domestic abuse. This is overture 20 from Nashville Presbytery. I imagine that may have um, some relationship to the discipline issue that came out of Georgia Foothills Presbytery last year. There's actually four uh, overtures uh, that asked for this study committee. Yeah. And again, I don't see what a good a study committee will do. This is surely something that presbyteries and sessions uh, can uh, deal with. Uh, we don't need the expense of a study committee. We know what is wrong. Uh, we know... Um, we should know, if, if we're biblical pastors, how to uh, deal with these issues. So once again, it, I think it would be a, a misuse of time and money to uh, get into having to study domestic abuse and sexual assault. And those five presbyteries that have put this before the assembly include Pacific Northwest, Nashville, Northern New England, Southern New England, and Tennessee Valley Presbytery. If we're going to have a study committee report assigned, more than likely it will be that one on domestic abuse and sexual assault as opposed to the one on uh, gender identity and sexual attraction. But again, we don't need stuff. it. Yeah, there seems to be a fascination with having study committees. It makes us feel like we're getting something done when really is the outcome pushing us 
toward our uh, our mission as a church. I don't know. There might be better things to focus our resources on. Dr. Piper, I, I wanted to ask you about this as well. This is from uh, Central Carolina Presbytery, Overture Number 23, Withdrawal from the National Association of Evangelicals. This this is a pretty big proposal. Um, I know there, there are people in the denomination that love the fact we're in the NAE, obviously those who don't, and then there are people, the denomination who love the fact that we're in NAPARC, and I imagine there are those who don't. <laughs> so talking, thinking through these extra ecclesiastical associations or supra ecclesiastical associations might be a better way of putting it. Uh, what, what is, what is the role that they play and, uh, in our church life and why or why not are they useful or beneficial and what should be the criteria for being a part of one or the other? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Whoa. Well, I, I'll let the you, the difference I'll let you between, uh, NAPARC, which I've already defined, and NAE, is NAPARC is made up of confessionally-minded churches, and the purpose is all ecclesiastical and spiritual. So cooperation, such as on a study report uh, like this, uh, cooperation in church planting is actually an agreement they're supposed to, if you're going to plant a church, there's a common agreement needs to be uh less than five miles from an APARC church unless you have permission uh, from that church. Uh, and so we work together. Uh, we really see this on the mission field where PCA and OPC uh, missions are co-opting men from other denominations. So we have PCA men serving uh, in a number of OPC uh, mission slots and vice versa. That's good. NAE has a very different purpose. They have an office in Washington. They're there to represent the, quote, the church uh, to a government, which uh, we ought not to have anyway. But uh, the NAE has also become um, quite uh, socially liberal. And so they have intermeddled in civil affairs, publicly pushing for action on environment, immigration, and have changed their uh, stance on death penalty. Now they are opposed to death penalty. It is said, this needs to be researched, that they passed a motion entitled Fairness for All, which is advocating for political compromise regarding sexual orientation, gender identity, and religious freedom. Um, and it claims to speak with a unified voice when it speaks in Washington, D.C., and look at the a couple whereas statements down. Whereas our sister denomination, yeah. the RPCNA, earlier withdrew from the NAE in 09. So think about this. You, our friend, <laughs> again, our friends in Metro New York want to be like the RPCNA. Here's, here's two a out of three. I'm it. all with them. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh boy. But also the whole NAE membership uh, violates uh, our Constitution. Uh, chapter 31 of the Confession that synods and councils are to handle conclude nothing but that which is ecclesiastical and are not to intermeddle with civil affairs which concern the commonwealth unless by way of humble petition in cases extraordinary or by way of advice for satisfaction of conscience. That means that the magistrate asks for advice. BCO, the sole functions of the church as a kingdom and government distinct from civil government are to proclaim, administer, and to enforce the law of Christ revealed in scripture so the nae uh in itself our membership there should never have happened i can remember when we debated it the first time at the assembly and the particular person who pushed it and now it is a hundred times worse than it was then so we really need need to be out and we need to become much more cooperative with napark we are kind of the bully right now in nay park and it's not good for our reputation i can't speak to that one way or the other and i've never been to a nay park meeting and i don't do debriefs with dr curdo or dr Backus and the other men from other denominations connected to the seminary who participate in nay park but um you know i i see so much good in nay park and especially the fine work that our brothers in the arp the rpcna have done on these 
hot issues of the day. And then also all of the all of the um, deliverances regarding federal vision all those years ago. Almost every NAPARC denomination had a had a rock solid, excellent deliverance and pushing back against federal vision. And yeah. to help our chaplains who asked for that. Yeah. Yes. Uh, we have done some good things and have shared those those reports. Mm-hmm. And and honestly, as the big boys in the room, I think the PCA has a responsibility to be humbly but actively engaged in uh, in NAPARC. And there's an avenue for that, whereas in the NAE, it, to my mind, it's a lobbying organization that just wants to use our brand to bolster its That's own exactly for right. donation dollars. Well, Dr. Pipe, I think we've covered a lot of ground today. I really wanted to talk about 27 on the possibility of remote voting at General Assembly, and uh, and I think there is another one that I was interested in, but those might be able we'll to throw be throw those into faith and practice. They won't take long. Yeah, for another so day. And, and also touch on broader principles that would be of greater interest to everybody. But uh, thank you for tuning in to uh, this special edition of Faith in Practice, PCA Overtures 2019 edition. Um, if you have any questions following up about these, please send them our way. We'd be happy to ask them. Um, if we get enough, maybe we'll do an, a second special edition between now and General Assembly. And I don't do this frequently, but I'll do it now because I'm actually getting ahead of myself a bit. Keep tuned or stay tuned for some upcoming special interest uh, podcast episodes on women in the diaconate. Um, I'm also going to attempt to to recruit some friends of ours from other denominations to talk about how their denominations approach these issues. But I will be having Dr. Nick Wilborn giving a historical perspective. Uh, Dr. Guy Waters of Reformed Theological Seminary will be coming on the podcast, Lord willing, to talk through a biblical uh, studies perspective, New Testament uh, studies particular perspective on women in the diaconate. And I, again, I'm, I'm working on recruiting some others uh, to, to continue to flesh out this this issue uh, as we in the PCA prepare to to broach it in the summer. And whether you're PCA or not, the conclusions that this denomination reaches in Dallas this summer and then over the following year will uh, we'll have a great the initial on your witness. Uh, movement for women in Dyken, it came from the OPC. So they need to be, uh, even a lot of those folks left and came into the PCA. Uh, the, it's, uh, it's not an issue that's going to be extraneous for them either. Yeah, that's right. And I'd love to get a, a perspective from an old-time OPC guy to talk through some of those deliberations in the history of their church. You've been listening to a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, please visit www.gpts.edu.